Great. Well, a real warm welcome to you again. Uh, my name's Tom. I'm one of the elders here at the church, one of the pastors. Uh, and if you have a Bible, if you could turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter, which is quite near the end of your Bibles. The last few weeks, we've been walking our way through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and in essence, the book is, uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians that he didn't know but that were being tested. They were facing difficulties and trials and pressure of many different kinds in what we would now call modern-day Turkey. And if you were to summarize the book of 1 Peter in one kind of big idea, it's this, okay? If you're a Christian, please do not be surprised when you face tests and difficulties and pressures. He's saying to them in loads of different kind of ways, Your whole life at different times, if you're following Jesus, will take you into places where you're facing tests and difficulties. And he doesn't want them to be wrong-footed. He wants them to be robust and strong so that they are rooted in a biblical understanding of what the Christian life is. We live in a world, particularly in the States, where there is a brand of Christianity at the moment, which basically says if you follow Jesus, your life will be A-OK. There'll never be any pressures You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, uh, and it'll all just be, you know, tickety-boo. And in fact, there's a bit of a, a flavor of that kind of Christianity in the UK as well. So we are hitting that head-on as a church, saying that actually, although God has got a blessing, that unashamedly, when you look through the New Testament, the whole Bible, that actually, when you're following Jesus faithfully, guess what? There will be tests. Can I have a hooray? Hooray! hooray. There will be trials. I'm saying it with a smile on my face. There will be difficulties. And this is huge because we can go, yeah, we get that. But when they then happen, we go, oh, what's happening? Is God even real? This is painful in my life. And if God is a God of love, he wouldn't want pain. And therefore, we actually respond badly sometimes without realizing it. So although this series um, is probably painful in some ways, I hope it's equipping us. Our desire as an eldership is that it's equipping us to be robust and strong. We like to get excited about Jesus and, you know, dance around and, and celebrate. But we want our roots to go deep as well. We want the roots of this church to be incredibly strong and deep in a biblical understanding of what it is to follow Jesus. And we've been looking in the last few weeks at various different aspects of the Christian life that will at times be tested. So last week, Hugh preached brilliantly on, on being in particularly a work setting where your, your, your boss may well be rather difficult to submit to, and yet we looked at the fact that God calls us to submit nevertheless. We've looked at the fact that our identity in Jesus will be tested. We've looked at the fact that our hope in God at times will be tested. And today, we come on, we laser in on the issue of marriage. Marriage. And before any of you guys here who are thinking, oh, you know, Tom, I've been married a long time. You're a young guy. You know, no disrespect, but, uh, you know, move aside. Uh, my, My desire today is that the Bible will do the teaching, okay? This time last year, we actually looked at marriage. It was just a coincidence that it was this time last year. And Josie and I, Josie and my wife, shared very sort of vulnerably about our relationship. We talked a lot personally about our relationship. Today, rather than doing that, I wanted to spend most of the time in the Scripture, okay? Because, fasten your seatbelts, guys. If you don't know the, the, the chapter we're about to look at, let's just say it's somewhat countercultural, okay? It's a little bit different to what the world may say about marriage. I think, personally... If you were to summarize what the world's kind of view on marriage is, is that it's, it's fairly important. It's fairly important, but to be honest with you, it's, it's not necessarily that important. 
You know, uh, in a recent statistical survey in the UK this coming year, up to 40% of marriages will end in divorce. 40%. And when I was just doing a little Google search for this and looking at some of the stats, the very first thing that came up, and I would have laughed if it wasn't so sad, was a website called quickiedivorce.com. Quickiedivorce.com. It said your complete DIY solution to a hassle-free divorce. No expensive solicitor fees, trusted by thousands. Quickiedivorce.com. We live in a bit of a quickiedivorce.com world, to be honest with you. And yet what we're going to see today is that the Bible, it couldn't be more opposite. It couldn't be more opposite. If the world says marriage is kind of important, but, you know, it's a quickiedivorce.com world we live in now, Tom. You know, marriage for life, it's kind of, you know, an old school kind of thing. We're, we're in the 21st century now. We're going to see that the timeless Word of God, the Bible, the perfect Word of God, it's like two tectonic plates that come crashing in today. You couldn't get more different to what the world says. But, you know, it's not enough just to know the general point that, yeah, we know that marriage should be for life and should be an amazing thing, even though it will be difficult at times. Tom, we need to know the million-dollar question is, how? How on earth, if we are married, do we make it something that lasts the long haul is in contrast to what the, perhaps the world would say? You know, some, I, I know that being a good father is an important thing. I know the, the truth of that, but I need to know how. I really do. I need to know specifics. I need to have a toolkit. I need to be equipped with specific, specific things that God has for me so that I can do it well. Does that make sense? And so today, it's not just saying it's important that you know, your marriage is a central part of your life. It's actually saying specifically this, oh husbands, oh wives, is what you need to have in your mindset. Okay, so get ready for, thank you very much. That's wonderful, nice water. So from chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to read. The how, okay? Verse 1. Likewise, likewise, wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person, of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I need your help. I always need your help. I need it a lot today. Those verses we've read are, for some, very difficult to hear. And if we're honest, for all of us, um, aren't easy. They're very different to what this world would say. And I guess, Lord, we want to say right away that we want to submit to your word. We want to submit to your word. And, and sometimes that's easier than at other times. And God, I really want to pray for each of us that you make our hearts tender, humble, soft, and teachable. I pray we wouldn't try and twist your word. We wouldn't try and change it if it's just not what we'd expect. I pray we would submit to your word. 
obediently. Amen. So we're going to spend most of our time today, not surprisingly, on the first six verses, which is addressed to wives. And we will then, I trust, come on to look at the final verse to husbands. Okay? It's a very simple structure today, mainly for wives, Christian wives, but we will also land, hopefully, for a few moments on the final bit, which is uh, the instructions to husbands. So, wives, um, it's just possible, ladies, that when we read those words, I'm just guessing, maybe just one particular little word kind of leapt out, beginning with S. Submissive. Um, I guarantee that there would have been some of you ladies here today that when you read that, you kind of heard the rest of what I said, but you kind of didn't. It was like, as soon as you read that word, it was like the rest of it was like, I was just sort of a noise in the background. Because that, that, that word, let's be honest with you, in the 21st century, it kind of has a somewhat incendiary, negative, whip, 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 red alert, get out of this place quick, kind of, run for the doors, you know, can, can pretend to go to the loo. Back in a minute, no, you won't be. Get out of this crazy nut house right now, kind of flavor to it. Um, and I just want to appeal to you. I want to appeal to you to give me a few moments to attempt to show actually what God, I believe, wants this whole passage to be about. In fact, I was just as I was preparing this this week, I was trying to convince myself, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Everyone will understand. It'll be fine. I happen to watch Wife Swap. I don't normally watch this program. If you know what it is, it's sort of, the title sounds horrendous, but actually it is just two wives who swap, not in any sexual way, just living together with another family. And this week, it happened to be a devout Christian couple from uh, Africa who were absolutely lovely and clearly loved God. However, their definition of submission was your worst nightmare for a preacher to preach on it. You know, basically the guy was like, we, I never entered the kitchen. Oh no, that's not the man's place. <laughs> and uh, obviously he loved God, um, but it wasn't terribly helpful. So if you saw that this week, please just try to raise that from your mind. Um, and we will come on to what Peter's saying. Now, this is, this is the huge thing, okay? So work with me here. What we're going to see now, we're going to come to the word submission and submissive in a minute. But we're going to understand two things. First of all is that this, from 1, from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, where he talks about submitting to every human institution, i.e. pay your taxes, drive under the speed limit, all of you. From there to the end of the book, really, in one form or another, it's all about submission. It's all about submission. It's saying all of us have got to submit to human institutions. All of us with ungodly leaders have got to submit to, uh, sorry, with, with uh, ungodly employers. We've got to submit to those. All of us, if we're in churches, need to submit to the government, to the pastors of the church. It goes on and on and on. And so today, as we come into this, it is one species. It's one aspect of submission within a whole sea of submission. First thing to remember. The second thing that we need to understand is the way that Peter builds his argument. And we could easily miss it, because when we see the word submission, we go, whip, 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 and we don't hear anything else. But what we need to do is, is understand this, ladies particularly, is that Peter, he paints a portrait in these verses. He paints a portrait of what it is to be a strong, noble, amazing woman of God. He paints a portrait that doesn't actually, although linguistically it starts with submission, actually when you look at what he's saying, it doesn't start with submission. That's actually, if you aim, if I'm a Christian wife and I've got to aim to be submissive, if you make that your overriding aim, 
it will go wrong. But what he does here is he shows that actually submission is the fruit of a life that is rooted in something far bigger. And we're going to look at how he does this with preceding steps before we get to the fruit of submission. And the first step that we see here in this portrait of what it is to be a strong, noble, inspiring Christian wife, we see here, read with me, in verse 5, for this is how, look at the phrase, the holy women who hoped in God. We've been hearing about hope, haven't we? Contributions have been coming about hope. This isn't a coincidence, okay? This is the most important thing for a Christian wife. And I cannot say, I don't want to distort, but I'm going to, yeah. They do not place their hope primarily in their husbands. All of you Christian wives are going, duh, yeah, we know that. But this is huge, okay? Because we can misread this and think that's what it means. And look at the words here. No disrespect, husbands, of course. Christian women, their roots, say roots, their roots, their deepest part of their inner soul is not rooted, really isn't rooted in a hope in their husband as much as they love him. It is hoping in God. That's huge. The picture that Peter starts here, if you imagine like a tree, their roots go in to God. He says, the holy women hoped in God. Their primary hope is not in their husbands. Because you Christian wives will know, let's be honest, your husbands are weird. On the outside of it, they might be able to pretend to be a bit normal, but let's face it, husbands, we are all weird. And our wives know that. So this is saying, let's be honest, where does it all start? How can we make sense of this thing that Peter's talking about here The deepest roots are in God. They don't hope in their husbands primarily. They don't hope in getting a husband. That's not their primary hope. They don't hope in their looks. They don't hope in their job performance or in being a brilliant mum or in anything. This is huge. They hope in God, the holy women, they hoped in God. Their roots were in God. They were unshakable. Proverbs 31, 25, I love this. Talking about a Christian wife, it says, let me get the exact words right here. It says, strength and dignity are her clothing. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs. <laughs> she laughs at the time to come. She looks at the future and she goes, could be good, could be bad, doesn't matter. Why? Where are her roots? Her roots are in God. Her roots are in her Messiah, in her God, in her Savior. This is a phenomenal picture he's painting. First of all, her roots go into God. She's a woman who knows her Bible. She knows her theology. She knows that if she's following Jesus, guess what? There's going to be tests. There's going to be trials. She's not under the illusion that her life will therefore be easy. She knows and is prepared for that. And her hope only is in God. He's her cornerstone. He's the one that she's building her life upon. And so she focuses her attention away from the things that could threaten and the things that could try and wage war and say, your future's going to be bleak. And she focuses her attention and her heart on her God, the one who is always faithful, 
the one who is always generous, the one who's always on time, the one who always listens perfectly, the one who is her true best friend, her true soulmate, her true rock, the one who always has answers, the one who never lets her down, Jesus Christ. Her hope is in God. And even as I'm saying this, some of you are going, yeah, we know. Don't dismiss that. If you dismiss that, the entire rest of this whole thing makes no sense. We have to be a church full of Christian wives who hope are in God. Their roots go into God. But it doesn't stop there. Then we see here in verse 6, flowing out of this hope in God. In verse 6 it says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not, what's the next word? Fear. You do not fear anything that's frightening. This is phenomenal. The picture he is painting here is of a Christian wife whose roots are in God. She hopes in God. But then flowing out of that like a mighty trunk of strength is a fearlessness. A fearlessness no matter what she faces in her life because her hope primarily is in God. She is able to combat the fear that could rise up in her when she faces life. And I love the fact that he mentions Sarah. This is absolute brilliant pastoring. Because if you know much about Sarah, Sarah was married to a guy called Abraham. Abraham was kind of the guy that God picked by grace. There was nothing special about him. Picked by grace to say, through you, I'm going to launch a rescue plan to planet Earth. And his wife was Sarah. And the thing about Sarah was, she was very human. Sarah made some big blunders at times. There was the one time where she suggested to her husband that he have sex with their, um, with their servant because there was a delay in God's fulfillment of the promise for her to have a baby. Good thinking, Sarah. There was the time where Abraham suggested to her, um, there's these scary rulers that tell her, let's pretend we're, boy, we're brother and sister so we don't get attacked. She goes along with him when actually at that moment he clearly wasn't following God. And then the real blunder with Sarah was when the time where she overhears God speaking to to Abraham and he says, God says, this is God, he says, yeah, I'm going to give her a, a baby. And she goes, ah, and she laughs in a way that the text shows us is disrespectful of God. So Sarah is very human. She gets it wrong at times like all of us. But what is this telling us is that saying that overall, she's a mighty hero. Overall, her life was one of fearlessness. She makes it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. She's an amazing woman whose life, despite some times where she got it wrong, actually because she was rooted, hoping in God alone, therefore what rose out of that was actually a fearlessness. She was someone who, as that Proverbs 31.25 description says, strength and dignity were her clothing. That's what she wore. I love it. She would have been someone who knew the promises that we're going to see in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.14 says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So first of all, the picture starts, roots, hoping in God, nothing else. Flying out of that, then we see the second aspect is a fearlessness, a wonderful strength. But then thirdly, we see here a third first fruits that comes out of hoping in God and displaying fearlessness. We see it here in verse 5a and verse 3 and 4. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Go back to verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, wearing of gold, putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So he's saying here that when you've got your roots hoping in God, you will start to know an increasing ability to fight fear and anxiety and worry. But then thirdly, he comes here to like a first fruit and it's about internal adornment. I love this. Just to clarify, he's clearly not saying that all external adornment is wrong. Okay, women, he's not saying you can never wear gold, ever. And you can never, ever do anything nice with your hair. Because if he was literally saying that, then he'd also be saying you're not allowed to put on clothing, which would be a problem. I think. So he's, he's not... I thought there'd be a bigger laugh at that moment. You're like, yeah, that's right, yeah. Naked. Um, he's not saying that. This is the thing. He's saying, where is your primary? Primary? Primary. Primary. Where is your primary adornment? Where is it primarily? Where is your energy going, Christian wives? Is it primarily going on the gym membership on getting those hair cuts done at that really cool place? Is it on your makeup? Is it on your fashion? Is it your primary place of identity? Looking in the magazines, looking on telly, comparing yourself, or is it actually your primary adornment is on the imperishable inequalities of a quiet and gentle spirit? And before you scream at me, Tom, I'm not quiet and gentle. Is this saying I need to be like kind of, you know, Princess Diana or something? Meek and mild. Is is this saying I've got to pretend to be something? No, it's talking about, it's not talking about personality, it's talking about your heart. You could could change the words there for tranquility. Hidden and quiet and gentle is talking about having a robust inner life that is unshakable. It's unshakable. And you know what? It's so fascinating because... The other three times that these Greek words are used, two of them are about one person you might have heard of. His name is Jesus. For example, it says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, gentle and lowly in heart. This is nothing to do with pretending to be all sort of oh, demure and, you know, soppy or something. This is the words that God himself, when he walked on planet earth, chose to use about his inner soul. Jesus himself said, you see, this this, this picture that we're painting, I hope every person here, irrespective if you're a woman or a man, you are saying, that's who I want to be. I want to be someone where my roots are in God alone. And that actually I find rising out of this, that there is therefore an ability to overcome fear in my life, and therefore my heart is increasingly in a place of tranquility. Because this picture that we've just been looking at is deliberately, incredibly similar to the picture that we find just before it. If you read with me in chapter 2, verse 21 about Christ, he says, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered, leaving for you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And look at this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is a picture of someone whose hopes are in God, who rising out of that, there is a fearlessness, and that his heart, Christ's heart, therefore, was continued in a place of steadfast tranquility. And this picture, therefore, 
This portrait that we see that Peter is painting of what it is to be a Christian wife is nothing to do with personality type. It's nothing to do with pretending you're something you're not. It is about actually finding your hope in God and out of the fruit of that, finding therefore that you are someone whose heart, and look at this phrase here, imperishable beauty. External beauty is perishable. Where is your primary investment, Christian wives, going? I'm asking that. Ladies, where is your primary investment going in terms of your adornment? Because if it's in the external, I've got some great news. It's perishing. It's perishing. It's going... No matter how hard you try to fight it, but it's okay. Because what he's saying is, you know, I'm not saying let yourself go, don't worry about it at all. He's just saying here, your primary investment is in here. And it's imperishable. It's imperishable. You can take it. When you get to heaven, it'll be like, I'm keeping that. That's good. That's of heaven. Don't worry about the rest. That is something of imperishable qualities. And then we find, fourthly here, then we find the fruit of submission. Verse 1 here, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Notice that, own husbands. doesn't say wives, submit to all men. No way. It is saying that there is a unique relationship between a husband and wife. A unique relationship. But we find here, when we follow the line of thought, from hoping in God, rising out into a fearlessness, showing itself in a heart of inner tranquility, the fruit, therefore, of that, of that sequence of events, the fruit is submission. And what we need to understand here is the huge cultural context that this is written in. Because in the Greco-Roman world that these guys were placed in, is that actually women were regarded not just as second-class citizens, but they were regarded as massively inferior to men massively inferior and but what we see is happening is that these wives were becoming christians is that they were getting saved is they were becoming followers of jesus and therefore they were entering into a new place of inner freedom knowing the true god now what we have to understand is that these husbands as the dominating oppressive leaders of those relationships they would have been the only ones allowed to give any spiritual direction to their wives and you know what, you wife, you will worship the gods that I worship. Now think about what Peter's doing here. He is writing a letter to these wives and saying, you are totally free spiritual moral agents. You are totally, totally equal to your husbands. This was actually revolutionary. It was feminism in its best possible sense. He was saying something seismic has happened when Christ came to this earth. He's changing it. Now this is huge, this countercultural thing that Peter's doing here by writing to them. And it could have easily caused tension in the household then. The husbands could easily go, wait a minute, my wife's completely changed. And she's listening to this advice that's been written to her. And it could have caused the husband's heart to grow hard to the gospel. He could have easily felt dishonoured by what was happening. So don't miss this. The reason, therefore, that Peter is saying to these he's saying, listen, listen, you've got a newfound freedom in God. But Peter is passionate about mission, and he wants their husbands to come through as well. And so he's saying to them, listen, I know culturally there is a submission around that is very, very ungodly. 
But what I'm saying to you now is use your freedom to submit willingly. Just as Jesus Christ willingly laid aside his authority and chose to submit at the cross, he's saying now follow in that way and you will win your husband through that. So this is actually massively countercultural, what he's bringing to these women. And it's interesting, the scholar Karen Jobes, who's written a brilliant commentary on 1 Peter, says how ironic it is that words that first century slaves and wives would have read as affirming and empowering are now criticized by some as enslaving and oppressive. These verses are a call to radical social transmission, to, 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 to transformation rather. This is, this is huge. And so we come finally there to this point of submission. So what, Tom, is submission? Let me just say four things very briefly what it's not. First of all, submission does not mean you have to agree on everything. State the obvious from this text here. Clearly, these wives and their husbands disagreed on what life was actually about. The wives were following Jesus, and their husbands said, nah, it's not for me. So first of all, it doesn't mean that husbands and wives have to agree on absolutely everything. Secondly, submission does not mean... Wives, you have to avoid every chance to change your husband for the better. It doesn't mean that. You see, we could read this and go, well, isn't this kind of saying, you know, submission means I've just kind of, you know, got to live with my lot. You know, it would be wrong for in any way to to see my husband change for the better. Peter is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, actually, the whole point of this verse here is that by your submissive and respectful conduct, you will win them. You will see them change. You will see them go, oh, actually, now that Jesus is the Lord in your life, you've changed, changed even for the better. Submission in this, chart, in this situation here, he's saying, is actually a strategy for change. We can often think it's the opposite, but actually Peter's saying, no, 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 here, listen. If you follow in godly submission as Christ was submitted, you may well find, actually, that your husband's heart is softened. Because look at the words that are used here. Respectful. Right in verse 1, it says, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful. Now, I want to say, and I know... Every Christian husband here would go, Amen, when I say this. Is that loving words of respect and affirmation from your wife are worth a thousandfold from anyone else. I mean, I crave Josie's genuine love, respect, and affirmation through words and other ways more than anyone else. I mean, I like it when people say nice things. I, you know, please do say nice things to me, that's fine. But I'm saying, and, and there's something, when you're married to someone, when, when they say it, when they conduct their, their lives in such a way as they're communicating it to you, it has an ability to soften a heart. And he's saying here, why is, in this difficult situation that you're in, this difficult situation where most of the people he's writing to seem to be their husbands, aren't Christians, aren't believers. He's saying, listen, if you respect them, it seems likely that they've already heard what the gospel is. And now he's saying, now you don't, don't keep bombarding them. Okay, give them some space. And through the conduct of your life, you may well see that they become one to the gospel. So submission, therefore, is not a means, it does not mean, rather, avoiding every effort to see them changed. Actually, submission may well lead to your husband radically changing. 
Thirdly, submission does not mean following a husband into sin. The Bible is clear that we are all, if we're Christians, to submit to Christ. And all other forms of submission are, in a sense, relative to that ultimate submission to Christ. So if your husband is saying, submit to me into this sin, you know who wins? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's not saying your, your husband is God. My goodness. Christian husbands are absolutely to be submitted to, to law and to uh, church government as much as anyone else. And so wives, we need to understand actually that he's saying Jesus is 10,000 times more the person you submit to ultimately than anyone else. But fourth, we see his submission also does not mean um, that you are to be expecting to get all your personal and spiritual strength from your husband. Now, I say to husbands, we're going to get on to husbands in just a moment, we need to be a positive spiritual fount of strength to our wives. But he's saying here clearly that primarily for these wives whose husbands aren't believers, actually that they're probably the ones that are actually the ones that are giving in that sense spiritually to their husbands because their husbands are yet to receive the gospel. So submission, therefore, is at the very least not those four things. So what is submission? What is submission? Well, submission at its heart is this. And if there's one phrase to kind of take away with you, it's probably this. It is difference in role, but equality in status. It is difference in role, but total equality in worth, in dignity, in status. See, this is the mind blower. You ready for this? Is that when you look in the Bible, God himself, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we see so clearly is that there is authority and submission in the Godhead itself. You see, for us, when we think about authority and we think about submission, we automatically think, you know, leaders and followers, we kind of think of someone who's a bit better and we've got to kind of, you know, we're a bit worse if we're following. That's how we sinfully think about it. But we're bringing our simple baggage to it. Because the reality is this, is that submission to authority is not some temporary thing that's been brought in recently. It's eternal. The Son has been eternally submitted to the Father. He was wonderfully submitted to the Father on planet Earth. And it's clear he will be eternally submitted to the Father for all eternity. When you read the Gospel of John, you just see it so clearly again and again and again. Jesus saying, I was sent by the Father I speak the words that the Father has given me. I do the works that the Father has given me. It goes on and on. He says, I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. It's extraordinary. This is Jesus. This is God. Totally, totally as much God as the Father. But he is totally at ease that there is a functional difference in the Godhead. And yet, within the Godhead, all three are equally God. And so you see, when you open the Bible at Genesis chapter 1, what you see is this extraordinary, extraordinary, mind-bending thing is brought into actually how marriage itself is first set up. It's echoed in marriage. So you see, on page 1 of the Bible, Genesis 1, it talks about male and female. He created them, both made in his image. Man and woman, equal image bearers of God, totally the same in status. But what you clearly see is that God gives a servant-hearted, initiative-taking, Christ-like leadership role to Adam. So that's why 
when Adam and Eve sin, and Eve is the first one to sin, God actually goes to Adam. He says, Adam, what's going on here? Why, why is everything broken down? It's a bit like you parents, if you've got kids, and you leave the house and you come back and it's, you know, a state, you instinctively go to the oldest one and say, hey, what's going on here? It's not that you love them more. They're totally equal in status, but there's a functional difference. They are actually the one that you've left in a place of leadership. And so we see here that God has instituted in marriage, in marriage, a leadership role for the, for the man and a following role for the woman. And yet what we see also is that doesn't mean all the things I've said it means. What it does mean is that husbands, as we're about to come on now, are called to an equally challenging thing. An equally challenging thing. Because what we see here in this final verse here in chapter 7, it says, Husbands, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. By the way, most scholars agree that that's most likely just referring to the physical difference between men and women. No scholar has convinced me in any other way that it means anything more than that. And he's talking here, he, remember in the context, husbands who could be very physically violent to their wives and it was culturally okay. Okay? He's saying, since they are heirs with you, equal with you, equal, therefore, um, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we see here two final commands that he gives to the husbands. And he's, if he's calling wives to follow their godly husbands, then guess what? Husbands need to be godly. Their ultimate hope is in God. Their ultimate following of their husband is not dependent all the time. I mean, as I said, if they're leading them into sin, of course, that's a different thing. But their ultimate hope is in God. But there is, it is so clear that the challenge for the husbands is absolutely, profoundly challenging. And it may be one little verse here, but don't be fooled. If you're a husband and you read this with any sense of actual, you know, I want to really get the meat out of this. You know, like apparently Bruce Lee used to do little one-inch punches, which used to sort of knock people over. This is like a one-inch punch. It's just one verse, but oh my goodness, it packs a punch when you read it. If you look, for example, in Ephesians 5, verse 25, a similar verse, it says this. You ready for this? I want to hear a gasp in the room when I read this genuinely. Husbands, love your wives, right, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Thank you. What does that mean? What it means is this, okay? So we've looked at some challenging, challenging verses for the wife. It now comes to the husband. It's saying, yeah, uh, you've got to love your wife um, as Jesus loved the church, which means that Jesus was butchered and tortured and killed because of his love for the church. What? Can it, can it really mean this? Yeah. Yeah, it means that. So wives, just as you're feeling, man, this is a tough thing. I just want to say, husbands, get ready just for the next few minutes because this is not this is horrific. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible and awesome and all kind of mixed in together. Two key things he says here. Live with your wives in an understanding way, i.e. get your thinking right, showing honor to them. Get your actions right. Thinking and actions, and then we'll finish. First of all, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. So this is the big idea. He's saying... Your default mechanism or your default position as a husband is this. When you come into a place of some sort of conflict or discussion, your default mechanism is not, oh wife, you have to understand my position. 
if only we had a pool table on the dining room table, it would be so much more fun and so much more hospitable. No, no, no. What he said, our default mechanism, I think as humans, but certainly as husbands, is to get them to understand our position. Put it this way, I'm like that. I just snap into it automatically. When there's, there's some sort of conflict, my default thing is to say, no, 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 Josie, you have to understand. What you do? I understand it from my position, my love. Look, I'll bear with you, but look, from my Honey, honey, I need another Bible because, you know, whatever it might be. And he's saying, no, you husbands, he's like he's grabbing them and saying, husbands, you live with your wife in an understanding way that your default mechanism is to stop that voice or to stop that thing when it comes up and to say, I want to, in this situation now, understand you. I want to understand your thinking. Men and women are different, I believe, to some degree. Um, It's funny how I have to say that, you know. Me and Josie are very different, should we say. So he's saying here, you have to put, this is energy. Where is your energy going in, husbands? It requires energy to have your default position is to say, I'm going to put energy now into understanding why you want to do X, Y, and Z. To understand your position on this. And as I've said many times, my, my sense with male-female relationships is that women generally don't need you to fix it always, but to understand. Oh, husband, just understand. Uh, Try and understand. It's interesting that, isn't it? That that's the kind of flavor that comes out of relationship advice. And it also happens to be what God's word says. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine loves his wife, he said, don't worry, it's not you, Hugh. You nervously laughed then. <laughs> a friend of mine, Tim. No, oh, no. No, it wasn't Tim. A friend of mine, married to his wife, so different. So different. Um, but she one day said to him, the fact that you always leave the top off the toothpaste makes me feel really disrespected. Really makes me feel unloved. It really gets to me. Now, that's a bit odd, but... But maybe it's not. Now, he externally, internally, he was thinking, oh my goodness, my wife is insane. (laughs) Insanity alert. He was thinking, she's mad. But externally, he was thinking, come on. Actually, why is she saying that? She was saying, look, primarily in their situation, she tends to do most of maintenance of the house, keeping it clean, keeping it tidy. In their situation, that's how the, the difference in role works itself out. And she's saying, every time you do that, it's like you're just saying, I just don't care about the fact that I'm trying to keep things in order. Now, he therefore said, okay, this is the thing. If it matters to you, darling, it matters to me. If it matters to you, it has to matter to me. Husbands, we need to understand that our life needs to be a pursuit of this. I talked to my dad recently, who is my huge hero. I love this man. He'd been married 35 years. He was thinking, he's still discovering so much about my mum that he never knew. And, and it's, it's, this, it's a joy, but it's, a, it's an energy thing. You know, where am I putting my energy? My energy is in trying to understand my wife. Live with your wives in an understanding way. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you know, husbands, how your wife feels loved? So I'm not talking about... What I'm talking about, okay, 
shorthand here, book by Gary Chapman, write it down, husbands, if you haven't got it, called The Five Love Languages. It's amazing. He's a Christian guy. talks about we all receive love in different ways. For me, it's words of affirmation. Come on, Josie, speak nice words to me. For Josie, it's more acts of service. Oh, darn. (laughs) So for ages in our marriage, it's like, I love you. I think you're great. You're wonderful. You're amazing. She's like, great, whatever. That's cheap. Do something for me. (laughs) Wash up. And I'm like, okay. And she's just like, oh, I feel so loved. (laughs) What? You weirdo. Washing up. Freak. So what I'm saying is, we can be misfiring throughout our marriage. Husband, like, I'm always telling her I love her. If that's not how she feels loved, it won't matter. And vice versa. So, know how your wife feels loved. Secondly, do you know how your wife connects with God? Because there's a whole multitude of different ways. For me, it's a cup of coffee, solitude, big fat Bible. Lots of time on my own. Oh, heaven. Not so much for Josie. Josie, she likes to get, roll up her sleeves, do stuff, serve weird she likes to serve and to help people all that stuff and to be with other people she just meets with god through that and what we find is there's a whole we go through scripture there's a whole multitude of different ways that we as people who are wired differently will connect with god so therefore live with your wives in an understanding way know that about her therefore attempt at least to give her times where so for me i could be like all right honey i look after the girls now you've got to go out and read your bible in the shed like me okay and she's like great brilliant thanks for the treat you know whereas if i understand and i'm I'm just on a journey with this myself just to state the obvious um that she functions differently then i'll encourage her to do that in a different way she's understanding husband understand your wives and the thing that he's just sort of it just sort of looms over this passage is obvious is this she's temporarily your wife all right you have the mighty privilege for a season of having one day after another where you can love her as Christ loved the church. But there's a day, and eternally, she's actually someone else's daughter. God. It should scare the pants off us, husbands. I mean it. When I met Josie's dad, uh, to go and ask him if I could ask her to marry me, if you know what I mean, uh, he's not very scary, okay, at all. He's a very nice guy. And yet I was like a gibbering wreck, gibbering wreck trying to ask this guy, it's all right, hi, marry your daughter. And... There's something about understanding who her father is that's implicit in this. Husbands, this isn't an optional extra. This is huge. After our relationship with God, this is next, okay? Not our job, not Manchester United, not your work, not even your kids. Your wife. You love your wife in an understanding way. And then finally, he says here, showing honor to them. Showing honor. It's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to know this stuff and to understand. It's also got to overflow in showing honor. That will look differently for each of us. Just as each of us feels loved in different ways, I'm not going to prescribe to you how you need to do that, obviously. But I'm just saying, husbands, as we walk out of here in a few moments, let that be in your heart. How can I continue to show honor to my wife? I just realized... This week, Josie and I were down with her mum and her relatives. And as I zoomed away back to Canterbury, leaving her there, um, I realised I just got a bit sarky. I just got a bit sarky. Really subtle. 
And I just left that taste in my mouth. I just thought, ooh, I hadn't shown honour to her. In a really subtle way that only we would have known. And I just had to just, for me, showing honour was a private thing in that moment. I just said, honey, I really want to say I'm really sorry. I, I really just felt the conviction of the Spirit. That wasn't right. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. I will try never to do that again. So it's subtle, but it is often public. You know, husbands, at times when you've got a dinner party or you've got a cell group or people over, even if it's not in your nature, it may be a mighty thing just to say publicly, you know, when it feels natural, of course, not sort of, <coughs> excuse me, everybody, but, you know, <laughs> to just, honey, I, just, I love that about you. You know, the room goes quiet. He's being emotional. Let it out. Show honour. Show honour. And then he just finishes, and I just love this, with a big, fat, juicy threat. It's just great. It's the side of God. I just, it's so helpful sometimes. He says, and if this doesn't happen, husbands, your prayer life will be hindered, shall we say. Now, if you're a husband and you're thinking, ooh, big threat, ooh, scary, like, that should scare you. Because our lives, all of us, but certainly Christian husbands, should be so dependent on an ongoing 24-7 prayer relationship with God that hearing those words should send us into a cold sweat. It's like someone, you know, I'm going to step on your air hose, buddy. You know, when you read this, it's kind of like, anyone here seen Meet the Parents? Robert De Niro, scary father-in-law, bring you down to Chinatown. He's a scary father-in-law who's protective of his daughter. Any fathers here who have daughters, I, let's just say, I'm somewhat protective of Daisy and Lily. I cruise around the creche. Just checking out the respect for those girls. Little one-year-old boys, better be respecting that. But we see here, God, this is how we finish the day. God is saying, husbands, this is, this is, this is, scary stuff your prayer life your relationship with me will actually be damaged it will be hindered if your relationship with your wife is not how you should be bringing it into if you're not living putting energy into understanding her into serving her into making her feel amazing if you're not putting her as the thing that you're living for after God if the thing that you're actually putting your energies into because your prayer life will be hindered that's, you can't sort of dodge the Greek there. It is what it is saying. So husbands, if your prayer life right now is rubbish, just make sure it's not for this reason. And I, believe me, this is not preaching to myself here, okay. It's a healthy, provocative threat from God to say, listen, my lovely boys, in this brief season of this life where you have my daughter, you work hard at showing her honour. You work hard at understanding her. Marriage, therefore, as we've seen in the last few minutes, according to the scripture, is a little different, perhaps, to how the world would see it. But the amazing thing is this, is that scripture says that every single Christian marriage is not even ultimately just about pleasure, about being together, about some of us having children. No, no. Ultimately, it's because it's to draw the world into a drama, a picture of God's relationship with his people. In Ephesians 5, we haven't time to go there. It says that the relationship 
of God's people with Christ is a little bit like a wife's relationship with her husband. And therefore, our desire as Christians here would be that if you come in here as a non-Christian and you go, wow, these guys are like really passionate about this Jesus person. It's like, wow, this is amazing. There's this kind of relationship seems to be going on with God and, and them. Is that as we go out in a few moments, that our marriages would be like a mini version of that all across Kent and beyond. That when non-Christians come in contact and they say, wow, you guys have conflict, you have difficult things, and yet there's something in here it's not just that it's something different. Tell me what, what is going on here. This is why. Yes, it's countercultural and different, but this is why. It's so, it's so a million miles away from cookiedivorce.com. It's just a million miles away. C.S. Lewis wonderfully said, he said, Christian marriage is like a dance. Ultimately, you have a leader and a follower, but both are equally valued. Both are equally involved. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, Father, I love you. We love you. Lord, I know this is a hugely sensitive thing we've been talking about. I know, Lord Jesus, that Lord, this isn't something that is a small issue. This is so close to your heart. And I just want to pray, God, that you would guard my if there's anything I've said that just didn't honor you, wasn't of you, I just pray it just fall away. I want to pray, God, for every marriage here. Lord, we know the enemy hates your godly advertising campaign that is marriage for your relationship with the church. I want to ask, first of all, for the men here. I want to pray against passivity and abdication, which is the disease of this nation. Just passivity. I want to pray that husbands here would not wait until their wives bring up, hey, honey, uh, do you think everything's okay? Am I serving? No, no, I want to pray today that the husbands would, would be the initiative, initiative takers, the initiators, the ones that create the time for them to discuss their marriage with their wives. I want to pray for husbands who would put energy into washing the feet of their wives as Christ washed the feet of his church. And I want to pray today, Lord Jesus, for the wives here who have no less of a challenging call to obedience from your word, that you would just apply grace, huge, lavish grace. Grace upon grace to find you in this, Lord. And I pray for every single here, Lord, Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet them. You would transform their lives. Lord, that you would bring, Lord Jesus, your absolute presence deeper and deeper into their lives. Lord, I pray for those who are about to embark on marriage or hope to one day. I pray, Lord Jesus, your word would be our blueprint. Not culture. Lord, not my feelings. God, we want to submit to your word. If, it, if we're following you, this is what it means, is to follow your word, is to follow you. I pray for that. Loving Savior, who so willingly, lovingly submitted to the Father, and yet was so strong and powerful and mighty. We love you, Lord Jesus.